0: This is John Schneiderman. You are listening to All Strings Considered. I started playing the banjo when I was about 10 years old. And you can hear me on the radio, hi, this is John Schneiderman, you
1: know, it's, it's,
0: it's hysterical. I was a multi-instrumentalist from the very start. songs in there you know you be the judge of that Uh, if it didn't have that title and of course I played the piece out of the Dresden manuscript not knowing it had that title being a Russian guitarist at the beginning of the 21st century is like being a lutenist was at the beginning of the 20th century it's a wide open field
2: Hey everyone and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com/allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. After some fairly intensive guitar episodes, we're going to take a quick tour of some related fields, namely the Baroque lute, the Russian guitar, a little banjo, and even some traditional Spanish guitar, but played without nails, and all by the same person, John Schneiderman. Schneiderman studied guitar with Frederick Node, yeah, you probably know his book, and then Baroque lute with the excellent Eugen Dumbois and is currently on the faculties of Irvine Valley College and UC Irvine. I thought we'd start with what he did, the banjo. The
0: guitar and the banjo kind of simultaneously. Although I was probably first known for my banjo playing because it was a, a little bit more unusual. I started playing the banjo when I was about 10 years old. And within those first two years, I got so absorbed by it. I would practice till my left hand fingers were bleeding, literally, I just I just loved it so much. At that point in time, there wasn't any very few resources for learning. I mean there wasn't all the videos and YouTube videos and even very few published books. There's a Pete Seeger book and one Earl Scruggs book and that was pretty much it. So I had to learn to play off of recordings. Uh, Sometimes that would mean slowing down a 33 and a third LP to 16 and seven eighths or whatever it is and It makes it an octave lower. And so if there was a a lot, especially the bluegrass playing, I did the claw hammer, the traditional style, as well as the bluegrass. But especially the bluegrass, um, if it was a really, really fast passage, sometimes I needed to hear it slower. And there wasn't computer programs for slowing it down without changing the pitch level. So you just got used to listening to some going down here, you know, an octave lower. And you would learn it uh, that way. I did my first radio broadcasts when I was 12. And you can hear me on the radio. Hi, this is John Schneiderman, you know, It's, it's, it's
2: hysterical. Oh. Thirteen. Thirteen. Both thirteen. How long have you been playing?
1: Um, almost four years now.
2: I lived in Ohio.
0: We moved out to California when I was about 11. There was a huge bluegrass scene in Southern California in the late 60s and the early 70s. Lots of festivals, literally once or twice a month. You could go off to some festival in Norco or Calico, Topanga, San Diego Folk Festival. I was a multi-instrumentalist from the very start. At one point, I even competed probably in the beginning category on the the fiddle. was very comfortable switching from one instrument to the other and kind of experimenting. And I think my attraction to instruments that are tuned to open chords and to changing tunings around comes from the banjo top four strings just like the Russian guitar. It's like my life came full circle. I can sit down on a Russian guitar and play Foggy Mountain Breakdown if I have to. It just doesn't have that, that high fifth string. So when it came to you know, playing the Baroque loop tuned to a D minor chord or the Russian guitar tuned to a G chord, I almost feel more comfortable. And I gotta tell you, if you had a Russian guitar and a Spanish guitar, if you had two of those instruments and you had a couple of five-year-olds in the room and you laid them both out, I guarantee you the one they would be strumming and writing their own songs on in a half an hour would be the Russian guitar, because it's tuned to a chord. Yeah. I mean, you can just slap a finger on with your left hand and, and you can play around.
2: So John found that radio show recording for me. Originally aired on KPFK on Howard Larman's Hootenanny. It features John Schneiderman and John Corzine. And since they were both named John, they came up with the name the Demijohns. A play on words for the literal Demijohn, which is a narrow-necked bottle encased in wicker. And probably used for moonshine back in the day. The term comes from the French Dame Jeanne, which is translated as Lady Jane. Here, John Schneiderman's playing banjo, and John Corzine is playing guitar. So here's the Demijohns playing Dixie Breakdown on the radio in 1971. But where do you learn your songs from? Are you taught them, or you take off records?
1: Or? Um, I usually take them off records. You've been doing
2: that for quite a while? Yes. So I asked them to do one more song for us before they even take off.
0: with the uh, baroque lute. German D minor baroque lute or the D minor lute it's often referred to. The top 6 strings on the fingerboard are tuned to an open D minor chord. ADF ADF. And this tuning lends itself So that's A, D, F, A, D, F. Sixth and third strings are A, fifth and second are D, fourth and first are F, producing an open D minor chord where the fifth string is the tonic and the sixth string is the dominant.
2: Then he's got seven more strings that are just in the air, none of them touching the fretboard. Just gonna descend G,
0: F, E, D, C, B flat, A, which is is the bottom string. So here's a descending D minor scale. Then if you got down to that low A, you'd have to re-enter up above to keep descending.
2: Another really interesting thing is that a lot of these strings are actually sets of strings called courses.
0: Well, here's an A string, for instance. There they are together. Here's this low note alone, and here's the high note alone. Could be better in tune, but it takes forever. (laughs) It's so cool.
2: (laughs) And finally, here's that great campanella or harp or bell-like effect that the lute does so well.
0: (laughs) So I'm playing the 7th fret on the 4th string, the open 2nd string, the 7th fret on the 3rd string, and the open 1st string. It's all about making use of the open 1st string and the open 2nd string, which is what componentes on the guitar, to a large degree, is all about too. (laughs) You're actually playing every note with the right hand, but it turns into more of an arpeggio because they're not on the same string, which makes it easier to play quickly. And if you're not doing this kind of figure, then you're doing a slurring figure. There I'm just… I mean, I played one, two, three, four, five, six notes, and I've only… I've hit it three times with my right hand. one must tune the bottom seven courses, or seven pairs of strings, the bass strings, which are typically not fingered with the left hand, you have to tune those to the key that the piece is in. And this is why the Baroque lute suites or sonatas typically have all the movements in the same key. I thought we would start with Silvius Leopold Weiss, 1687 to 1750, almost an exact contemporary to uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, who was 1685 to 1750. Weiss was to the lute world or the plucked string world what Bach was to the keyboard world. He was the pinnacle of high German Baroque music. I chose a sonata from the Dresden manuscript, number four. I thought we would play the final movement of that. The same sonata also appears in the London manuscript as well under the title La Fameux Corsaire, The Famous Pirate. It's a very, very satisfying sonata and it concludes with this very energetic movement labeled Presto.
2: Is there some sort of programmatic element that allows that? Title? Is there any pirate
0: songs in there? I, you know, you be the judge of that. Okay. Uh, if it didn't have that title, and of course I played the piece out of the Dresden manuscript not knowing it had that title, and. It didn't strike me as anything, you know, it's not like you hear an Irish jig in there or something like that.
2: Uh Dances within a Baroque suite like this one tend to be in two parts, an A section and a B section. The A section repeats and the B section repeats.
0: The second time through, I try to elaborate a little bit on the written out ornaments. If I recall, this particular movement is kind of a non-stop stream of notes, so I don't know if there's a lot of variation on what I do on the second half. I may just be trying to survive. (laughs) We'll take a listen and see. Yeah, let's take it (laughs)
1: out.
0: difficult as that might sound it's actually much easier on a baroque lute than it would be on a guitar this music in general guitarists look at the baroque lute they see all those extra bass strings and they just think I'm gonna keep playing the guitar but the reason it's easier is because on the baroque lute if you were to watch me playing that piece you would never see me making any awkward stretches you would never see me trying to hold a bass note and do something else somewhere else, especially higher up the fingerboard, because you have a whole scale of bass strings in the key that you're in. So it's like A and E are or D on the guitar. You can play any inversion anywhere on the fingerboard, do what you want, and you have the bass as an open string. That's a huge advantage. The disadvantage, of course, is that your thumb has to learn to jump around between all those bass strings, but after a while, it, it comes by feel. Uh, Next, I thought we'd move on to a composer after Weiss, Karl Kohout. Kohout was Haydn's lute player. It is most likely in his hand that the so-called Haydn lute works survived. Um, Those works are primarily arrangement of string quartets. Kohout wrote what I consider to be the best concertos for the lute. Unlike Vivaldi, who did not understand the lute and only wrote single line music, not distinguishable from his writing for violin, recorder, or any treble instrument really, Kohout was a master on the instrument, understood its capabilities to be closer to the keyboard. I really enjoy the repertoire for lute and strings. This particular uh, allegro is the opening movement of Kohout's concerto in F major. This is probably his most well-known concerto and has been transcribed and is sometimes performed by guitar players, actually. Scored for lute, two violins and cello. This is early classical music, really more than Baroque music, like Haydn, Kohout had one foot in the Baroque door and one foot in the Classical door. Uh, So this track is the opening movement from the concerto in F major. And it's a full-blown concerto where you will hear the lute going off alone for long sections with just the cello accompanying. Elizabeth Blumenstock and Lisa Weiss are the violinists on this. Bill Skeen is the cellist. And there's some unison playing between the violins which is just is just spectacular they they did a wonderful job on the Baroque Lute, you're usually either slurring or playing things across strings.
2: And what makes the slurring more natural on that instrument?
0: Well, the Baroque Lute is very responsive. I mean, they're very lightly built. And when you just take your finger off of the string, I mean, it just speaks. It speaks very easily with the left hand. Mm. And it's written into the music. I mean, if you look at advice, there's just slurs everywhere. And when I run across movements where there's not slurs, I feel like, well, they just got lazy and didn't put the slurs in. And you you, you put them in where it facilitates executing the passage, which doesn't mean if you have a sequence, you're going to put the slur on the same pair of notes within that little motive each time. Uh. You're going to put it where it works to make it easier to play. It's all about ease of putting it across. And you're always going to be able to play more expressively when it's easy to do than, uh. than when it's difficult. You don't play divisions the way you do on a, on a, a renaissance lute where it's all about, you know, every note is played with the right hand and except for a few ornaments you're not doing anything with the left hand. Mm. The Baroque lute world is kind of the, the other way around really. Mm. Lots of slurring, lots of playing scales across strings, and that, that sort of thing. Are we recording? Okay. Oh, yeah, we are. Okay. Um, so I thought this one I'm kind of throwing in just for fun. I know we just heard a rather lengthy movement by Kohout, but um, this one was kind of fun. In a recording session, players tend to get warmed up and take greater and greater risks, especially with tempo. And when I heard the playback on this in the booth, uh, when I first heard it, I was afraid it sounded a bit frantic and I expressed my concern to the other players and to the producer and the engineer, and they convinced me that we didn't need a slower take. And in the long run, I'm kinda glad we left it and I'm not sure I could do it again. Uh, There's probably still some people out there who think it sounds frantic, and it might depend on your mood. But this is a a presto finale from a divertimento in B-flat major. Uh, Here's what Tim Crawford has to say. Kohat's divertimento was issued in separate parts in a handsome printed edition in 1761. When you absorb a lot of music, you certainly don't keep it all under your fingers all the time. And so if I record six concertos by a composer, that doesn't mean I'm then off performing all six concertos. Well, to promote the recording, I probably will do a couple of you know, performances like that. But then after that, you, you pick the one that you want to keep under your fingers, you know. And it's not necessarily the most difficult one, it's not necessarily the easiest one. It's just, you know, the one that strikes you the most. So, this particular one is not one I've kept under my fingers, but it might be fun to uh, revive it. You want to hear it? Yeah, it's, it's
1: a little crazy.
0: You know, sometimes when I listen to something I've done from the past, um, I, I, I think it sounds too careful, and maybe lacks some energy. Uh-huh. Don't feel that way after listening to that one. It's just like, wow, it's amazing it didn't turn into a serious train wreck, because yeah. we were definitely going over the speed limit here. <laughs> Poor Bill, the cellist, who has to go from you know, doing very little to suddenly he had that one spectacular quick lick just up and down the fingerboard and I, I could just see him in the back of my mind because suddenly you know, his movement comes out when you're playing. Suddenly there's this little distraction from over in the cello when he suddenly has to do something besides double what my thumb is doing, which on most of this music that's primarily what the cello is doing just doubling uh, what the lute player's thumb is doing. Some lute players actually leave out the bass part and just do the top line since the cello is playing it anyway.
1: Uh
2: So before we move on to some no-nails, romantic-era guitar playing, this episode of All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by audible.com. I particularly enjoyed hearing David Sedaris read his memoir titled, Me Talk Pretty One Day. There's an especially hilarious section in which his father tries to force Sedaris and his siblings into forming a jazz combo. Not to mention that Sedaris does an amazing impression of Billie Holiday. Audible is offering a free audiobook to the listeners of All Strings Considered. Just go to audibletrial.com allstrings. Okay, back to John.
0: Okay, I thought we would move on to the guitar. Although I've played the guitar most of my life, I started playing the guitar when I was about nine or 10. And um, I started playing the Baroque lute probably when I was 21, I believe. I was you know, itching to do something on the guitar. And uh, I chose Napoleon Cost as my first recording. And for this uh, particular recording, I actually had a seven string guitar built. Because at the time, people weren't performing so much cost because he wrote for a seven string guitar or sometimes even more than that extra seven string. And of course, on this type of guitar, Western European guitar with additional basses, the additional basses are off of the fingerboard. For me, that's essential because I play with my left hand thumb. Uh, on the sixth string, especially F, F sharp, G, typically I play with the the left hand thumb. Yeah, there's enough space, it splays off. I've played on some guitars where it starts getting kind of close and every once in a while, you'll catch it, twang it, you know. But um, but for the most part, they on European guitars, there's enough room so that you can do that.
2: So the European guitar is the one we all think of as the classical guitar? Yes, exactly.
0: Exactly. I hate to call That's it really normal cheap, guitar. Typically, I play on guitars that are in, a, in a, a Viennese tradition that have narrower fingerboards. But even on a Spanish guitar, I can wrap my thumb around. But mm-hmm. this is not repertoire that I would be playing on a Spanish guitar. Really? On, on this recording, it's a copy of a 19th century instrument. With this, with this added seventh string, it's not a copy of a Lakota, which is what Cos played. I actually had a copy of one made, and I just didn't love it. So I took an anonymous guitar from my collection, and had a copy of that made with the seventh string added to it. And then it's very, very, very comfortable.
2: Is this the guitar that Mertz or Sore would have been playing as well? Sore played
0: on. Uh, I, Sore played on uh, Lacotte as well. Yeah. Cost was a student of Sore's, of course, his most celebrated student. Cost is considered the, the leading French guitarist of the 19th century. You' sort of excluding Fernando Sor even though he lived in Paris because he's so Spanish, he's from Spain. Right. Um, but they were friends they wrote some of Sor's duets are dedicated to him and, and vice versa and they performed together. So Opus 17 through 23 are Cost's souvenirs or recollections and they are a cycle of seven pieces, all but one having a title of a geographical region. The Zuyderzee is a large body of water in Holland now known as the Iselmere. Kost used a guitar with these additional bass strings. He also used a guitar with an extended range up on top going up to as high as 24 frets. This particular piece does not go that high, um, but this particular piece does make extensive use of the low D string. It's in D minor and D major and as I mentioned that string is not on the fingerboard so it's only played as an open string. It could also be tuned down to a low C. This guitar and exploring this music with the one additional bass string was the beginning of one of my bad habits which was getting interested in collecting and performing on guitars with multiple Bases. The most recent instruments I have are instruments by I have a Scherzer from 1860, which is six strings plus five. Scherzer was sort of the pinnacle of Viennese uh, guitar building in the 19th century. Christian Friedrich Martin also was in that workshop and worked alongside of Scherzer, and he's the Martin who came over to New York in the 1830s and became the Martin guitar factory over here. Wow. Recently, my, the the guitar the Western European tuning, standard guitar tuning that I play on is a 10-string guitar uh, by Herman Hauser. I actually have two, one from 1913 and one from 1928. They're still based in the Viennese style. They might as well be 19th century guitars. Mm. And So, Le Zeiturze. Thank you. The first thing many of you may be noticing is the sound that I make on the guitar and that of course is the result of the fact that I play without fingernails. I do everything wrong. I play without fingernails, I play with my left hand thumb, and I play on weird Viennese (laughs) instruments. But of course there's a long tradition of playing without fingernails. Sor, who was Koss's teacher, played without fingernails. Tarrega, for the last 10 years of his career, played without fingernails. Um, lute players, since the beginning of time, for the most part, with a few exceptions, play without fingernails. So it is a different sound, something that I certainly prefer for myself. You're lucky you don't have to deal
1: with them, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, there is an advantage. Uh, when I was younger, I don't work on cars so much anymore, but when I was younger, I did a bit. And yeah, not having the hassle of having to break and repair a fingernail and glue it and use the tape and the ping pong balls and inhale all that bad stuff, whatever. I mean, it's, it's nice not to have to do that. I did play Spanish guitar with fingernails. I studied with Fred Node. But when I started getting more serious about the lute, the nails kind of came off. And when I did some exploring, I found out, you know, how many 19th century guitarists played without fingernails. I thought, good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Pujol, in his method, where he's basically trying to express the teachings of Targa, he says, the tone of a string struck with the fingertip possesses an intrinsic beauty, which affects the deepest feelings of our sensibility, just as air and light permeate space. Now, I don't know if I'd ever say something like that, but, okay, this is in Miguel Fuenana's Vihuela Method. Um, he says, only the finger, the truly living thing, can communicate the intention of the spirit. Anyway. I don't know that I would take it to those kinds of extremes. That um, you know, you're not going to get to the soul of the music if you're playing with your fingernails. But it's just a personal, a personal preference. There's advantages. There's disadvantages. When I'm performing, I try to, you know, project so that people can hear me. If the hall is big enough, I'll, I'll amplify if it becomes necessary, if there's good amplification and good microphones available. But typically, you know, I play on some beautiful instruments, and I like people to hear the real sound of the instrument. So now that everybody has gotten used to me uh, playing without fingernails, uh, you're going to get to hear two of me playing without fingernails. <laughs> Um, the next track is from a, a CD of mine which includes all the known guitar duets of merits, with the exception of a couple of opera potpourris. And these duets are for a terz guitar, which is tuned a minor third higher, and a regular guitar, and I played both parts on this recording. And this particular piece, Anru, uh, which means restless, certainly lives up to its title.
2: guitars in a very traditional way, and yet you're using a sneaky recording technique. A double <laughs> tracking,
0: well, you know, <laughs> recording it all is bringing it into another century, so why, right. not? why not do the, the double tracking? Recording with myself, mm, Yeah. Kind of an odd idea. I guess I don't have any historical justification for it the way I do for playing without nails and playing with my left hand thumb and playing on a Viennese guitar. That can be justified. Uh, Double tracking, not, not so much. I just couldn't find anybody at the time who knew them all, who you know was up for it. And I had uh, loved these pieces and worked on them with students as well as uh, on my own. And I suddenly realized I knew both parts to all of them. I have a terz guitar and a regular guitar. And by a terz guitar, I mean a, a smaller-bodied instrument tuned up to G. Of course, you can take a regular size guitar and put lighter strings on it and crank it up. Or you can capo on the third fret. When you're trying to record with yourself, you don't have the visual cues from the other player. I suppose if you took a video of yourself playing it, one could do that the other disadvantage is it's kind of hard to promote performances with something like this because whoever gets a copy of the cd now if i just sent them an mp3 i could say it's you know scott wolf and me playing this piece and we'll come and perform for you (laughs) but you know if i send them the cd they see it's me and they're thinking well who's who's going to play the second part you know that kind of thing so it wasn't a brilliant marketing strategy but nothing i do is a brilliant marketing strategy usually (laughs) So, um, I, you know, I just did it because I really, I really love the music. I consider Kost and Meretz to be sort of the seminal romantic guitar composers and love this stuff. Meretz, for my ears, was the closest thing to Russian guitar music before I started playing Russian guitar music. And I didn't even know that until I started playing some of the Russian guitar music.
2: And on that note, let's move into the last section of today's show, the Russian guitar. Wow. Wow, it really looks like two separate necks at two separate angles.
0: The, these are often um, so cool. referred to as double necks, even uh-huh. though the second one isn't really a neck. It's just a support for the strings because you're not actually fretting it.
2: Oh, yeah, and it's seven strings there already. Yeah, so this is <laughs> a- so warm
0: sounding. This is a, uh, a Russian guitar uh, by Mikhail Oroshkin. This one was built in 1908. The Russians really respected the Viennese school of guitar building and were heavily influenced by it. This uh, Eroshkin, the plantilla, the shape of the guitar is identical to a Scherzer from 1860. And of course it has seven strings on the fingerboard. Now these necks are bolted on and are adjustable with a clock key. Now, hopefully we don't lose too many people when I talk too much about tunings. But if you're interested on the Spanish guitar, we discussed how from the low sixth string, the seventh string would just be D, C, B, A going down to a tenth string. Well, on the Russian guitar, they don't increase the range of the instrument by adding extra bases, which to me is kind of unsatisfying. But what they do is they add bases that you don't have as open strings already.
2: The Russian guitar's open strings are all Ds, Bs, and Gs.
0: So I've got all those D, Gs, and Bs. What don't I have that you use all the time on a Spanish guitar? I don't have an A and an E string. Yeah. And when I play A and E on the Russian guitar, I wrap my left hand thumb around and play the second fret on the sixth string and the seventh string. Uh-huh. But those are the first two notes that you have down here. So the sixth and seventh string are G, D, and then, even though I'm going what looks to be lower, it jumps up to an A and an E. Uh-huh. And then I have an F uh-huh. and a low C. Oh, yeah, so it really is. Really so that C is, is extending the range by one note. So I have uh-huh. four extra bass strings, but I've only gone one note below the string. So go through string. all
2: 11 from one side to the other.
0: So here's, well, here's the top string going down. So D. It may seem strange, but what it is, is it's pairs of tonics and dominants. That's the open string, that's a G. And I'm alternating between G and D. Now I can fret. Uh, The 19th century guitar tradition in Russia was associated with the seven-string instrument tuned D, G, B, D, G, B, D so it's tuned to an open G chord. Now those are strings that we have on the, on the Spanish guitar, a G string, a G string, and a B string. The Russian guitar repertoire is an absolute gold mine, much of which has not been explored for most of the 20th century. Being a Russian guitarist, meaning one who plays the Russian guitar, not a guitar player from Russia, at the beginning of the 21st century is like being a lutenist was at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a wide open field. Because of its open tuning, open chord tuning, like the Baroque lute, the Russian guitar lends itself to octave imitation, passages in octaves, campanellas harp effects, and playing scales across the string. Do a quick little uh, octave thing. Oh, oh, here here's a passage. Yeah, let me find one here. Yeah, it's just like the lute. It's always on the same frets. There's a good one in here. Let me find it. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. I'm just no sliding of on position. the same
0: fret. No changing of fingering. Here's another example. Ah, and you get to slur a whole octave, which you can, is so cool. Yeah, yeah, three of them. Do that one you, again. I like that one. Yeah. The one I just did was... a little The Russian guitar typically employs more slurring than its western counterpart. Unlike the Baroque lute, Russian guitar music is written in staff notation, so it requires learning to read in the open G tuning. Most of the guitarists that I run into, when they first hear about the Russian guitar or hear me perform on the Russian guitar, they're really excited about it because it's just a whole new pile of composers and repertoire to explore. Yeah. Even when we talk about the tuning, they think, oh, that sounds pretty cool. As soon as they find out that it's not in tablature, I see their back and they're walking away because they, they don't want to take that jump. I wish more people would take that jump. This revival needs to get bigger. I mean, it's spectacular repertoire and it's easy to put together a concert of music that's great and nobody has heard a single piece of it. After you become familiar with that tuning and read in the tuning, what you discover so something that would be tricky and very virtuosic, and look you look like a gymnast when you're doing a, an octave passage in Giuliani. You do that on the Russian guitar, and you can throw it off like nothing's happening because nothing is happening. You're just playing notes on the same fret, and it's and it's very very easy. It's 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 a it's a great tuning. It really makes sense, and a lot of this music is out there for free on the internet. The Boya collection has uh, a lot of Russian guitar music in it. If you're not sure what it is, just glance through the index and the names that look Russian, probably a good bet that it might be for a seven string guitar. It goes both ways.
2: What? how's that spelled?
0: B-O-I-J-E. It's a collection in a Swedish library. Let's see, the first track that I chose is by Vasily Sorenko 1814 to 1881. Uh, This is an etude in B minor. This track is from a box set of Russian guitar CDs that will be released this coming spring, spring of 2014. I collaborated with Russian guitarist Oleg Timofeev. This is actually a solo etude by Vasily Sorenko. Sorenko was a student of the famous Andrei Sikra. This etude is a beautiful miniature, like the etudes of Fernando Sor. One could compare this to the B minor, the famous B minor etude of I know he wrote many of them, but you all know which one I'm talking about. At about 2 a.m., I read through this etude in B minor by Sarenko. Oleg and I were staying at a beautiful mansion in Virginia where the sessions were. And without thinking about the time, I walked down the hall and burst into his room, exclaiming, that Serenko etude in B minor is gorgeous. What a gem. To which he replied, yes, very nice. I know the piece. At which point I realized what time it was. Andrei Sikra is the patriarch of the Russian guitarist. He's renowned for pushing the seven-string Russian guitar technique to an extremely high level. Uh, The piece I've chosen, Rondo a la Savoyard, is based on a tune from a French comic opera. The refrain in Sikra's Rondo clearly depicts an instrument with drones, be it a bagpipe or hurdy-gurdy.
2: So before I get to give you a sneak peek at this new recording from John and Oleg, let me just say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf, and you've been hearing music and words from John Schneiderman. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hey, if you find yourself at the end of the podcast with nothing to do, how about reviewing the show on iTunes, liking on Facebook, or following on Twitter at AllStrings. Until next time, this is Saryenko's Etude in B Minor and the Rondo a la Savoyard from Andre Sikra. Enjoy!
1: Thank mm-hmm. you.